You are listening to episode 45 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. If I were a nightingale, I would perform the work of a nightingale. And if I were a swan, that of a swan. But as it is, I'm a rational being and I must sing the praise of God. This is my work, and I accomplish it, and I will never abandon my post for as long as it is granted to me to remain in it. And I invite all of you to join me in this same song. Discourses 1, 16, 20-21. Epictetus is typically considered the most religious of the Roman Stoics, and as such some attempt to portray him as an outlier among the Stoics. However, as A. A. Long points out, quote, in his conception of divine providence, creativity, and rationality, Epictetus is completely in line with the general Stoic tradition. His distinctiveness in what I have discussed so far extends mainly to the enthusiasm with which he commends obedience to God, and to the warmth he infuses in his expressions of God's concern for human beings. End quote. We find the same notable religious sensibility in the philosophy of Seneca, Musonius Rufus, and Marcus Aurelius. And as A. A. Long further notes, it is, quote, broadly in line with traditional Stoicism, end quote. To a large degree, these religious sentiments result from the inherent structural resemblance between the rationality of human beings and that of the divine logos, which allows for a certain degree of personalistic theism in thinking and speaking about God in Stoicism. We see this language used frequently by Epictetus. Likewise, over the history of the Stoa, God will assume more and more spiritual and personal traits, and religiousness will tend to permeate Stoicism and move it toward theism without fully arriving there. Nevertheless, it is essential to balance the religious sentiments of Epictetus with the realization that he never claimed nor adhered to any form of divine revelation. Neither did he express the need for religious faith in the forms those concepts are commonly understood today. For Epictetus, to follow God means that we should pay attention to God in us, i.e. to our reason, in order to determine what is the right thing for us, namely, how we are to live in accordance with nature. As Andrew Mason, teaching fellow at the University of Edinburgh, points out in a beautiful little volume titled The Philosophy of Epictetus, quote, talk of God's seeing, helping, guiding, speaking to, and punishing us, and of God as our Father, can be explained in terms either of God's overall providence, or of our inner God, or daimon, our reason, which is a fragment of the cosmic deity. Likewise, prayer for Epictetus is not an appeal for intervention by an external God, but rather an admonition to oneself. Epictetus does differ from the early Stoics in the extent to which he uses personalistic language about God. This may be explained partly by his personal outlook, but also by the purpose of the discourses, in the context of which God's providence and his status as an ethical example are more important than the cosmological aspects of him which played an important part in early Stoicism." A. A. Long sums up the difference between Epictetus and his predecessors in the Stoa by arguing that he, quote, proceeds from rather than to God, end quote. 
He points out that Epictetus' favorite formula for the goal of human life is to follow the gods. The earlier Stoics used oikiosis as a starting point to explain Stoic ethical theory. They taught theology last. Epictetus reversed that approach and made theology the starting point of ethics. Epictetus builds his ethical theory and practice on what Long calls theonomic foundations. Epictetus argues that we are born with an intrinsic moral sense, a preconception of the good and the divine. Because each of us possesses a fragment of divine reason or logos as our guiding principle, we are innately capable of understanding and living according to the laws of God that are written in nature. Thus, Epictetus' instruction to follow God is equivalent to living in accordance with nature. Nevertheless, Epictetus is not unique in this approach. As Plutarch noted, Chrysippus always put theology first when discussing ethical matters. Here we see why the Stoic conception of nature, derived from the study of physics and theology, is essential to understanding this holistic philosophical system. Both oikiosis and theology fall under the topic of physics and Stoicism. Thus, whether the Stoics began with oikiosis or theology, they grounded their ethical theory in physics, the study of nature. The Stoics did not conceive of God as a transcendent being. The Stoic divinity is imminent. As such, a fragment of the same logos that providentially orders the cosmos resides in us as our guiding principle, our hegemonicon. A. A. Long suggests, quote, the Stoics' deepest religious intuitions are founded on their doctrine that the human mind, in all its functions, reflecting, sensing, desiring, and initiating action, is part and partner of God. End quote. In his book dedicated to the application of Epictetus' teaching to our philosophical way of life, A. A. Long writes, quote, Whether Epictetus speaks of Zeus or God or nature or the gods, he is completely committed to the belief that the world is providentially organized by a divine power whose creative agency reaches its highest manifestation in human beings. That was Orthodox Stoicism. And much else that Epictetus attributes to divinity is quite traditional. However, no theology is simply a matter of doctrine. Conceptions of the divine are indicated in numerous ways that go beyond such epithets as eternal, creative, providential, and beneficial, on all of which the Stoics were agreed. Awe, reverence, gratitude, joy, prayer, obedience, these are a sample of the attitudes that a serious belief in a supreme divinity typically involves. Stoic philosophers, just like other believers, vary considerably over which of these attitudes they express and with what degree of emotional engagement. When we review Epictetus from this perspective, his theology emerges as most distinctive in two aspects. First, it's serving as an explicit foundation for his moral psychology. And secondly, it's warmly and urgently personalistic tone. More emphatically than any other Stoic on record, Epictetus speaks of Zeus or God in terms that treat the world's divine principle as a person to whom one is actually present and who is equally present to oneself as an integral aspect of one's mind. End quote. A word of caution is appropriate here. We must use due caution when approaching Stoicism with our modern conceptions of God, religion, and piety. If we fail to check our preconceived notions and biases, we are likely to misinterpret and misunderstand the Stoics by falling victim to either over-assimilation or excessive differentiation. 
We moderns commit a serious error when we attempt to position the Stoics at either end of the modern metaphysical spectrum. The Stoics were neither theists nor atheists in the modern sense. Stoicism is a rational form of spirituality that arrived at a conception of divinity through reason rather than revelation. Therefore, the Stoic conception of a divine, providentially ordered cosmos resides in the open space between theism and atheism. Many scholars apply the label of pantheism to Stoic theology. However, it is clear that a thread of theism was present from the founding of the Stoa, and this blend of pantheism and theism is expressed differently by various ancient Stoics. Nevertheless, as we shall see, the Stoics in general, and Epictetus in particular, considered their worldview essential to their philosophical system. The difference in worldview, the nature of the cosmos, and the nature of human beings, was one of the primary differentiators among the Stoics, Epicureans, Cynics, and Skeptics during the Hellenistic period. They all agreed that eudaimonia, a good flow, was the summum bonum of life. Likewise, they all agreed that an excellent character, virtue, was essential. The Cynics even agreed with the Stoics that virtue is both necessary and sufficient for eudaimonia. It was primarily their divergent worldviews which subsequently affected their other doctrines and differentiated these philosophical schools. A. A. Long argues, quote, The choice of Stoicism over Epicureanism, its principal rival, was decisive not only for one's ethical values and priorities, but also for one's understanding of the world's general structure, one's theology, and the importance to be attached to systematic reasoning and the study of language. Yet, however much these and other schools disagreed over their accounts of such things, they all shared the view that philosophy should provide its adepts with the foundations for the best possible human life, that is to say, a happiness that would be lasting and serene. At Epictetus' date, and in fact from long before, philosophy in general was taken to be a medicine for alleviating the errors and passions that stem from purely reactive and conventional attitudes. To put it another way, the choice of Stoicism over another philosophy depended not on its promise to deliver an admirable and thoroughly satisfying life, that project would not distinguish it from rival schools, but on its detailed specification of that life and on the appeal of its claims about the nature of the world and human beings. End quote. Modern Stoic popularizers are simply wrong when they argue that physics and theology are not essential to the Stoic philosophical system. There is no support for such an assertion in the surviving text or credible scholarship of Stoicism. One can abandon these aspects of Stoicism in modern times, as Lawrence Becker did, and attempt to create something entirely new for atheists and agnostics who reject the Stoic worldview. Becker understood he was creating an entirely new synthesis of Stoicism, and that's why he called it a new Stoicism. Nevertheless, the Stoic worldview does remain viable in the 21st century for those who are both rational-minded and spiritually inclined. 21st century science does not contradict Stoic theology. Those who claim the Stoic worldview is untenable in modern times rely on the metaphysics of scientism rather than science to make that unsupportable assertion. In fact, 21st century discoveries like quantum theory and the Big Bang support the Stoic worldview. Likewise, the contemporary trend toward panpsychism among many thinkers supports the Stoic idea that rationality is present in some form in the cosmos from the beginning and at the ground level. 
Anyone who will set their preconceptions and commitments to a particular worldview aside long enough to consider Stoicism in its fullness will discover a form of rational spirituality that is reasonable, psychologically satisfying, and adequate as a foundation for normative ethics. For those who may doubt the religious nature of Epictetus' teaching, one only needs to, to look at the discourses and, and even the very titles of the chapters of the discourses. Let me give you some examples. Book 1, Chapter 3, the title is How, From the Idea That God is the Father of Human Beings, One May Proceed to What Follows. Book 1, Chapter 6, is titled On Providence. Book 1, Chapter 9, titled How, From the Idea That We Are Akin to God, One May Proceed to What Follows. Book 1, Chapter 13, How May Everything Be Done in a Way That Is Pleasing to the Gods. Book 1, Chapter 14, that the divine watches over us all. Book 1, chapter 16, on providence. Book 3, chapter 17, again, on providence. Throughout the discourses, Epictetus encourages us to seek coherence with the divine, which is the same as living in accordance with nature, since all of nature is divine for the Stoics. Epictetus acknowledges our kinship with animals and repeatedly contrasts those humans who succumb to their animal-like impulses with those who live according to their divine nature. In Discourses 1.3.3, he highlights our mixed human nature and implores us to heed our reason and intelligence, which we share with the gods rather than our wretched animal-like nature. The former inclines us toward our kinship with beasts. The latter, coherence with the divine and blessed. Again in Discourses 1.6, Epictetus stresses that God brought us into existence to live in accordance with nature, not our animal nature. Quote, but God has brought the human race into the world to be a spectator of himself and of his works, and not merely to observe them, but also to interpret them. It is thus shameful for a human being to begin and end where the irrational animals do. Rather, he should start off where they do and end where nature ended with regard to ourselves. Now it ended with contemplation and understanding and a way of life that is in harmony with nature. Discourses 1 6, 19 to 21. Pierre Haydo asserts to contemplate divine creation was the meaning of existence for Epictetus. In Discourses 3 5, Epictetus imagines his death and he tells his students what he will say to God. Quote, Is it now your wish that I should leave the festival? And I take my leave, full of gratitude, that you have judged me worthy of taking part in this festival with you and of viewing your works and understanding your governing order. May I be thinking such thoughts, writing such thoughts, reading such thoughts, when death overtakes me. Discourses 3.5 Epictetus uses the festival metaphor frequently in his discourses, and it often entails our human responsibility to observe and learn from the divine and providentially ordered cosmos. Likewise, in Discourses 1.14, Epictetus states that we are closely bound and united with God because our soul is a fragment of the divine. Then in Discourses 2.8, Epictetus makes a profound statement about the presence of God as a fragment in each person and challenges us to keep this in mind at all times. Quote, In your social relationships, in your physical exercises, in your conversations, aren't you aware that it's God whom you're feeding? A God whom you're exercising? You carry God around with you, poor wretch, and yet have no knowledge of it. End quote. Then he chastises his students by pointing out that they 
would not even consider misbehaving in the presence of a statue or image that they consider sacred. Yet they behave poorly while God is imminent in their very person. Discourses 2, 8, 13. Like all of the Stoics who preceded him, Epictetus considered a providential cosmos essential to Stoicism. Pointing to the tradition of the Stoic philosophers who preceded him, Epictetus argued, quote, The philosophers say that the first thing that is needed to be learned is the following, that there is a God, and a God who exercises providential care for the universe, and that it is impossible to conceal from him not only our actions, but even our thoughts and intentions. The next thing to be considered is what the gods are like. For whatever they're discovered to be, one who wishes to please and obey them must try to resemble them as far as possible. Discourses 2, 14, 11. Epictetus, like the Stoics before him, thought the providential nature of the cosmos was evident to anyone who reflected on nature. Quote, All other animals have been excluded from being able to understand the divine governing order, but the rational animal possesses resources that enable him to reflect on all these things and know that he is a part of them and what kind of part, and that it is well for the parts to yield to the whole. End quote. What is the result of that trust in providence? Epictetus outlines that in Discourses 4-7. He suggests the person who properly trusts in providence for that which is outside his control will, quote, be free, contented, happy, invulnerable, magnanimous, reverent, and one who is grateful to God for everything and never finds fault with anything that comes about and never cast blame on anyone, end quote. Likewise, as Epictetus makes clear, his distinction between what is up to us and not up to us entails more than resignation to that which is beyond our control. It includes trust in the providential order of events, and that begins with acceptance of the fact that events in nature are not within our control. Quote, what are we to do then? To make the best of what lies within our power and deal with everything else as it comes. How does it come then? As God wills. Discourses 1, 1, 17. Again, in Discourses 4.4, Epictetus links the trust in a providential cosmos to acceptance of things outside our sphere of choice. It was not enough for Epictetus to assert that some things are outside of our control, and that's just the nature of reality. If Epictetus stopped there, we would be left with nothing more than that stiff upper lip, suck it up buttercup character of Stoicism that most people find unfulfilling. Instead, Epictetus provides us with a conciliatory message. Stop trying to control those things that are not up to us because they are in the care of the providential cosmos. Quote, there is one path alone that leads to happiness and keep this thought at hand morning, noon, and night. It is to renounce any claim to anything that lies outside the sphere of choice, to regard nothing as being your own, to surrender everything to the deity, to fortune, to consign the administration of everything to those whom Zeus himself has appointed to carry out that task, and to devote yourself to one thing alone, that which is your own, that which is free from all hindrance. Discourses 4, 4, 39-40. And I'll insert one word of caution here, and that is, again, this is not about quietism. This is not about standing side and doing nothing, because that is not the Stoic way of life. The Stoic way of life is to engage. However, once we've engaged and we've put forth our effort, our intent to act in a virtuous way, in an appropriate way, if we don't get the outcome that we wanted, we're not to be angry about it. We're to accept it as a part of the providential cosmos, playing out its part and taking care of the world as a whole. 
In Discourses 112 on Contentment, Epictetus outlines various positions that people take on the gods. He notes five distinct metaphysical theories. Number one, atheism. The divine doesn't even exist. Two, Epicureanism. It does exist, but it is inactive and indifferent. Number three would be Aristotelian deism. It both exists and exercises providential care, but only with regard to important matters related to the heavens, and in no way to affairs on earth. Four, general providence. It does take thought for earthly and human affairs, but only in a general fashion without showing concern for each particular individual. And five, individual providence. Not a movement of mine escapes you. Next, Epictetus examines each of these theories in connection with the Stoic edict to follow God. He begins by pointing out the obvious fact that the command to follow God is nonsensical if no gods exist. Theory number one. Likewise, he argues, it does not make sense to follow or obey the gods if they have no interest in human affairs, as the Epicureans suggest. Theory number two. Then Epictetus lumps three and four together as a metaphysical theory, which denies communication between gods and humans. Here Epictetus argues that we cannot follow or obey what we cannot comprehend. Finally, he offers his support for a providential cosmos that is concerned with individual humans and has provided a means to understand and follow nature, God. However, in Discourses 112.6, Epictetus goes beyond mere comprehension of the divine via our guiding principle or rational faculty, and he argues for metaphysical theory number five, because it alone allows for communication with the divine. Quote, if, on the other hand, they both exist and exercise care, but there is no communication between them and human beings, and indeed by Zeus between them and me specifically, how even in that case can this idea be sound? End quote. In this passage, Epictetus uses the Greek word diadosis, translated as communication. He argues that some form of communication between the divine and humans is necessary to make it possible for us to follow the gods, to live in accordance with nature. Marcus uses this same word in the Meditations. Quote, to have clearly and regularly pictured to myself the proper meaning of life according to nature, so that insofar as it depends on the gods and on communications, assistance, and inspiration from the divine, there is nothing to prevent me from living according to nature straight away, although I still fall somewhat short of this by my own fault and by failing to heed the reminders and one might almost say the instructions of the gods. Meditations 117. Again in Discourses 114, Epictetus uses diadosis to describe God's ability to have, quote, some communication with all that is, end quote. Epictetus and Marcus are not referring to a form of divine revelation. The God of the Stoics dwells within us as a fragment of the divine rationality that operates in the cosmos. The communication between the divine and humans is facilitated by reason through our rational faculty. As A.A. A. Long argues, quote, Epictetus follows his tradition in taking the general character of God and his works to be fully accessible to human understanding. If we apply our minds properly to the study of our own and the world's nature, we are literally in touch with God. Physical nature, not a sacred text or revelation or inspired prophecy, is the Stoic's guide to the divine. The Stoic outlook on God is this worldly in the sense that there is no supernatural domain for which we should be preparing ourselves in this life. No end of days when lives will be judged. 
The life that we have now is what requires all of our attention. The only punishment for those who neglect the principles of Stoicism, Epictetus says, is to stay just as they are, emotionally disturbed and discontented. End quote. How does this communication with the divine occur? Through our daimon, our personal guardian spirit. As Epictetus points out, our perceptual powers are limited by time and space. Nevertheless, quote, God has assigned to each of us, as an observer, his own personal guardian spirit and has entrusted each of us with its protection as a guardian that never sleeps and is never open to deception. Discourses 1, 14, 12. The Greek word daimon means spirit. Thus, a happy person is called eudaimon, and a state of happiness, good flow, or well-being is called eudaimonia. The excellent, virtuous person in Stoicism has a good spirit inside them, a good spirit developed through Stoic spiritual practices. The daimon can be considered that still small voice of God. Socrates referred to his daimon frequently, and he said that it never told him what to do, but that it warned him against doing wrong. For the Stoics, the voice of God, our daimon, speaks from within rather than from on high. Our daimon is the God that dwells within, mentioned by Seneca in Letters 41. Epictetus continues to elaborate on our daimon and its implications in Discourses 114. Quote, to what other guardian could he have entrusted us that would have been better and more vigilant than this? And so when you close your doors and create darkness within, remember never to say that you're on your own. For in fact, you're not alone, because God is within you, and your guardian spirit too. And what need do they have of light to see what you're doing? I will cover the topic of the daimon again in a future episode on the religious sentiment of Marcus Aurelius, since he refers to it frequently. But for now, it's important only to recognize that human reason is a fragment of divine reason, and that recognition can have a profound psychological impact. As Epictetus said, quote, If only one could be properly convinced of this truth, that we're all first and foremost children of God and that God is the father of both human beings and gods, I think one would never harbor any mean or ignoble thought about oneself. Why, if Caesar were to adopt you, no one would be able to endure your conceit. So if you know that you're a son of God, won't you be filled with pride? Discourses 1-3. I could go on much longer. Epictetus mentions God nearly 300 times in the Discourses and the Enchiridion. One cannot read Epictetus and miss his religious sentiment. Nevertheless, I will close with two passages from the Enchiridion that are both relevant and critically important to anyone attempting to follow the path of the Stoic Prokopton. First, Enchiridion 17. Remember that you're an actor in a play, which will be as the author chooses, short if he wants it to be short, and long if he wants it to be long. If he wants you to play the part of a beggar, Act even that part with all of your skill, and likewise if you're playing a cripple, an official, or a private citizen. For that is your business, to act the role that is assigned to you as well as you can. But it is another's part to select that role. End quote. This passage reminds us of the providential nature of the cosmos and simultaneously encourages us to find the role nature designed and created for us. In addition to cosmic nature and human nature, each of us has a unique individual nature. Our unique nature allows us to simultaneously live in accordance with nature and live our specific role. 
As I wrote in my essay on Providence or Adams, trust in Providence allows us to take a step back from our circumstances and view the whole of our life from a distance. We are often unable to see the whole picture because we are too close, too focused on the individual events. When we step back, a different picture emerges. The threads of painful events and difficult circumstances are still there, yet they are woven into the tapestry of our life. This perspective of the whole allows our judgments of the parts to dissolve into equanimity. Additionally, this panoramic view of our whole life allows us to see the causal chain of providence playing itself out. We begin to understand how each of those events was a necessary causal link in the story of our life. They are now part of the person that we have become. More importantly, a view of the whole may reveal a trajectory to our life that we did not see before, and this may open our minds to new possibilities for our future. End quote. This last passage is also the final chapter of Enchiridion. It's a paraphrase of Cleanthes' hymn to Zeus. Cleanthes was the second scholarch of the ancient Stoa, so his deeply religious hymn demonstrates that this sentiment was present in Stoicism from the beginning. Epictetus prefaced this paraphrase of the hymn with the instruction to keep it close at hand. Guide me, O Zeus, and thou, O destiny, to wherever you have assigned me. I'll follow unwaveringly, for if my will fails, base though I be, I'll follow nonetheless. Whoever rightly yields to necessity, we accord wise and learned in things divine. In Chiridion 53. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.